2: Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. I relate musical keys to tastes. The key of G is fruity, and G minor is a slightly bitter beer. That was the intriguing observation of a listener to a recent Naked Neuroscientist podcast. It's more common, though still unusual, to link musical keys to different colours. That's known as synthesia. If these things seem odd, mixing up tasting, listening and looking, it's worth remembering that our perception of colour considered on its own is by no means straightforward. What the eye delivers to the brain, the mind then interprets. That's our subject this week, the colours in our minds. Professor Anja Halbert is a leading expert in this field and spoke on the Naked Neuroscientist podcast.
1: We respond to light coming off objects in order to see objects, but we also respond to light itself. And our eyes are flooded with light from the room, from the surroundings, from the environment. Generally, we call that ambient illumination. And the light that's flooding our retina at the back of our eyes is also stimulating receptors that are not involved in conscious vision. They're not involved in helping us to reconstruct colors of objects and recognize them. They're involved in modulating our overall mood, behavioral level of alertness, sleep-wake cycle, and our overall behavioral and cognitive function. And These receptors are part of what we call the non-visual pathway. So we not only see light and see objects, we also feel light and respond to it in non-visual ways.
2: It was Professor Hulbert who caused a stir a while back by posting a picture of a dress on the internet and asking people to describe its colours. Some said it was a white dress with golden lace. Others were adamant that it was a blue dress with black lace. It seems it all came down to how we respond to colours that are close to each other and to the ambient light in which we view them. My remote guests this week are the art historian Dr Ilaria Benocchi from the University of Cambridge, and who is currently teaching at the University of Warwick, or was until lockdown, and Dunya Habash, a PhD student here at the Wolf Institute, researching the music of the Syrian diaspora. Dunya has also trained as a concert pianist in the United States. Ilaria, as an art historian, do you think about the neurological ins and outs of how we perceive color?
3: Oh yes, very much so. Um, we are the funny thing is that uh, we are used to associate color with painting, uh, but in fact, art historians tend to talk about color, coloristic and chromatic effect, also when it comes to sculpture and even engraving, which is notably black and white. So when we talk about color in sculpture we discuss the incidence of light on the surfaces that creates almost chromatic effect of chiaroscuro and light and shade and nuance. And when we discuss colorism or chromatism in engravings of course we tend to refer to the use of the line. So it's the funny thing is that as art historians and probably Uh, As people in general, we tend to use colour and we tend to see colour even where colour isn't there. We tend to fill in the gaps with the language of colour, even when everything is in black and white. And it means that colour is probably a very, very complex experience in our brain and in our act of seeing.
2: And when you fill in colour, presumably when you teach your students, that's something you want them to avoid? Or is it something you want students to fill in themselves?
3: It's important that they that they learn to see art. It's not automatic. I think there is a training in watching art and understanding it, and in being able to appreciate um, the way colors work, the way colors are used by painters, and also the way we should interpret them as art historians trying to make sense of these artworks. It makes me think about two funny examples from two completely different periods. One is a very, very famous painting by Titian, the Venetian painter of the 16th century, and is the flaying of Mar- of Marcius. Um, Marcius is a satire and he is skinned alive because he dared to defy Apollo. And when Titian decides to paint this very gruesome scene, he actually does not depict any blood, does not paint any blood. It just adds touches of red here and there, in the cloak, on the tree, in the things that are present in the scene. The effect is equally affecting, but actually there is no blood represented, but we feel the blood because there is the red. And the other thing that made me think about the the strange ways in which our brain approaches colour is uh, Yves Klein, the 20th century artist who created invented a completely new colour called the blue Klein, which is a sort of a shade of ultramarine blue, And he tried to liberate painting and art from a narrative, even a a shape. And he painted these entirely monochrome paintings with blue. And you had to just feel it and vibrate with the colour. He was trying to find colours that made you vibrate along with uh, the artwork. So these are fantastic ways in which colour has been interpreted in a non-literal way over the centuries.
2: And Dunja, how about you? How is colour interpreted? In music,
3: well, it's interesting, Ed.
4: Um, I think in recent times, and I guess uh, Scriabin, the Russian composer of the early 20th century, um, was really the first one in the Western world to kind of uh, come up with this idea that you know sound can have color, because he claimed to be a synesthete, and um, he came up with these very intricate. Uh, color scales of the different uh, tone scales in um, in Western harmony, basically, so for example, for him a c sharp had an orange tinge to it, for example there's been a lot of research, especially in the neuroscience world, about um, synesthesia and trying to find like what is the connection the, what are the neural connections in someone's brain that would bring about these crossing of the senses and they're discovering that a lot. More people than they initially thought actually have this interesting uh, form of synesthesia. So, um, so really, it's it's. I mean, it's not very common, but it is becoming more common as a way of interpreting, discussing, and um, being more creative. Basically, I think uh, the pop artist Lord also has synesthesia, and uh, she she said that um, it helps her a lot with. Uh, coming up with new ideas and composing—it's just—it's interesting because basically you just you see color or you see texture and and I guess it just adds to the creativity when when writing music or so a lot of composers have claimed um, over time.
3: But the same thing can happen to painters and in fact, for instance, Vasily Kandinsky, the great abstract painter of the Blaue Reiter, um, insisted that his compositions were almost like concerts, and they, were, and they were interpreted as such by critics from the time, from Roger Fry to all the others. He said it was inspired sometimes by Wagner. His, there's been connections made with the Rheingold. So, funnily enough, also painters think in notes and seem to, to build these perfect systems, very musical systems of painting, of signs.
2: Is it more than language, Ilaria? In other words, I can see how some terms like building paintings in notes or uh, how a composer can think in artistic language. But it's one thing to use language. It's another thing to actually experience it. In other words, is it more than just a linguistic expression?
3: I do think so. I think it's possible. It's definitely possible. We know that it's neurologically possible. And um, as much as there is a Of course, it's difficult to say for us, to interpret for us, because we don't have the direct contact with the painter. Uh, But at the same time, we know what the painters wrote about their work and about their way of composing. Composing also in terms of art, making visual arts. And we know that we can recognize as traces of a different path, a different process that has to do more with feeling what has to go on the canvas instead of thinking it through. So it's not necess- it's it's a very fine line, but I do believe it exists and it's a possible and it's an interpretation. And some artists like Kandinsky used it themselves, proposed it themselves.
2: So Dunya, you have expertise in Eastern, not just Western music. Is there some element of colour in Eastern music?
4: Um I think this is interesting because You know, a lot of the studies that have come out about synesthesia are obviously mostly based in in the Western world, in the Western sciences, the Western academy. So there's I don't know very much um, about, you know, if if this kind of condition has been discussed in other parts of the world. I think a lot more composers than we think actually experience this, you know, multisensory creativity, basically. Um, I actually have a really good friend who's a musician and um, back in Alabama. And, and he, he also at some point started realizing that he was seeing colors as he was making music. And then he realized that he actually does have synesthesia. So I think with very creative types, it's just natural for them. So they naturally are inclined to create more and more. And, and that's why probably uh, more often than we think, composers, artists, uh, any kind of really creative type, it's possible that they they would have synesthesia because it probably all just comes together and advances and enhances their their creativity. I think Scriabin is a very interesting example because he really tried very hard to to mix um, light with his music. And towards the end of his life, he was uh, preparing for a piece um, called Mysterium, which was supposed to be this multi-sensory uh, experience, basically, and, and he wanted to build a very special temple in the Himalayas, and, and um, his claim was that this would be kind of the total work of art that would involve dance, words, lights, smells, music, and, and he hoped that would bring about the end of the world, um, and usher in kind of a new era for humanity. So he was very eccentric in in that sense. Um, very out there. Kind of a composer. Was really pushing a lot of boundaries, basically in musical creativity. He also, before that, wrote wrote a piece where he wanted um, a, a light organ to accompany it. Um, so he came up with all these colors and tried to. You know, had a special organ built where each note had a had a specific color as he was seeing it in his mind. But it, in the premiere, they never used it because it was just way too advanced technology. And there were many other composers who who would argue with him about how impossible this was. You know, that C sharp would have a color um, or that, you know, the key of G minor um, is blue or, or anything like that. But of course, in recent time, you know, with, with the development of neuroscience and, and all of the studies that have come out, um, that has been, you know, confirmed, basically. And it's very likely that Scriabin was, in fact, a synesthete. And, and that did enhance his his music.
2: I just want to move on to the question of biblical characters in art and, and the use of religious colour. So, for example, white is used as a colour of purity, but also death in religion. Black is the colour of sin. Red is the colour of passion, but also war and sometimes holy war. In other words, what happens when these biblical stories are put into art? And what happens when they're translated into musical representations? Do, do you think about these biblical stories, the image of the resurrection of Christ, for example, or Moses on Mount Sinai, when you create music? Is there a connection, in other words, between the two?
3: Well, certainly there are um, religious figures, religious characters from the Bible, from the New Testament, for instance, that are associated, who are associated with some colors. Uh, I am not sure how this could translate into music, because that's not... Um, specifically my field but for but the funny thing is that there are many ways in which a character can be associated with color uh, a famous case is that of the virgin mary we always think about the virgin mary with a blue cloak is a blue mantle that is a traditional depiction in western art at least an allegorical interpretation of this color would be in fact wrong because the reason why blue was used in that case was very very econo- was was linked to economy. blue was created from lapis lazuli which were much more expensive than gold; hence, uh, the, the magnificent appearance of the Queen of Heavens had to be had to be matched by the use of the richest hue. And the patron who commissioned works of art from painters, of course, lived of the reflected glory of having been able of to pay for lapis lazuli for all that mantle. So sometimes colors in art are linked not to interpretations or not to scripture, but are linked to very, very practical concerns like money, wealth, beauty, uh, etc.
4: That's a really interesting point, Alaria. And actually, it um, makes me think a little bit of um, kind of color symbolism in the Islamic tradition. Um, For example, you know, I grew up um, thinking or learning that the color green is a very sacred color because um, there's a hadith or a saying of the prophet where he claims that it's one of his, you know, most famous colors or his favorite colors, um, and there's you know other reasons why the color green has become so associated um, with like holiness in Islam. So, for example, a lot of mushafs or, or Qurans are uh, the cover binding is usually a color green. Um, With the gold inscription on it And it was only recently that I realized It's because of this uh, sacred association with the color Um, Others claim that the Prophet used to wear a green turban So that's another association And there are other claims as well Because the color green is mentioned a lot in the Qur'an actually For example, descriptions of what paradise would look like Or the kind of green silk robes that people would be wearing in paradise so all of these little details have, have created this kind of sacredness around the color green. So I think it's it's very interesting how colors can kind of take on this extra material meaning in, in like the daily life of, of worshipers as well. Uh, the color white is also symbolized with purity. So kind of like what you were saying about how the color blue has become this sacred color to represent uh, the Virgin Mary. And um, similar also, so that's why, you know, in the Hajj or the pilgrimage, uh, people are encouraged to wear white or you're supposed to wear white towel, basically, if you're a man when you're when you're going to Hajj. And it, and it's all wrapped up in this uh, symbolism of of purity. Um, or if you if you ever have seen images of people praying at the Kaaba, uh, most most people are dressed in in white dress or the white thawb, um the white gown, basically, which is another symbol of kind of uh, the Muslim worshiper.
2: Let's take a pause and check the doors of our perception are not too confused. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Dunya Habash and Ilaria Benocchi. Here's Anja Halbert again, talking about the complexity of how the mind interprets visual
1: data. So the areas in the brain that analyse colour are actually located quite close to the sort of deep-seated emotional areas of the brain. And I don't think it's any accident, therefore, that colors readily evoke intense feelings in people. Vision scientists think that there might be a link in evolution between the emotional responses that objects aroused in us and the colors that they are, so that we developed a means of using color as a sort of proxy for other properties of objects, and then we transferred those properties of objects to our feelings about the colours.
2: I'd like to follow up what you were saying, Dunya, before the halfway point, because the colour of green is so associated with Islam. And yet it's interesting that there's a sort of direct conflicting response, particularly amongst medieval Christians, the Crusaders, who didn't wear green deliberately because it was associated with Islam. So the reaction in Christendom was not to use green when fighting against Muslims or the Islamic enemy at that time. So there's an example of art being used in conflict or omitted in conflict, as if you're acting against something. Alaria, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I was I was also um, very struck by uh, Dunia's choice to cite precisely green and white. It made me think about... Uh, The opposite of what we were discussing earlier, we discussed earlier how the choice of colors like blue uh, that we believe has some sort of allegorical significance, in fact, was, um, you know, determined by uh, different factors, very pragmatic, very matter of fact, everyday factors. But there is also a fascination with some colors that can be in a way deadly, despite material factors, and specifically with green and white, uh, because green was a very difficult color to obtain. And for a long time, it was made with arsenic. and It was an extremely poisonous color to use for painters. And the same happened with lead white, which was the most beautiful, the purest form of white, a type of white that made light, that reflected light in a very beautiful way. But there was lead in it, so for a long time, um, I've read somewhere once I remember that perhaps the, the the fact that Napoleon chose to have his room decorated with his green, uh, the um, the fumes of this green determined his death in a way or another. So sometimes we are so in love with the uh, emotional, perhaps visual effects of a color that we use it despite uh, it being poisonous, and that happened precisely with green and white.
2: Talking of color perception. Do you agree with this sense of an evolutionary explanation that Anja Halbert offers us?
3: Um, Well, personally, I know that there is a branch of history of art that in recent years, and I'm talking about the last 30, even perhaps 40 years, so quite recently, but not that recently, has been considering um, the use of colour from a neurological point of view. Uh, It is possible, it is definitely possible that we have an instinctual response, an inbuilt neurological response to some colours. However, it is very difficult, since there are so many layers of cultural manipulation of those colours and transformation of those colours over the centuries, it's probably, um, you know, a mixture of both. Of course, a completely dark painting or something that is very dark very black you know the night is pitch black and it's something we all experience and we all associate it with not knowing not understanding it with fear with primal fears so of course the use of of black and of dark hues in a painting maybe making it mostly black like in caravaggio with just a dim light does probably evoke some sense of mystery some sense of unease. Um, which could be said to be a neurological type of response um in built inside of us, but then uh, art historians try to look at a you know at an artwork as a whole, and so it 's difficult to pull apart the different threads i don 't know about dunya what what dunya thinks about it
4: It makes sense to me that given what what we had to do in our surroundings in our environments and being just totally engulfed in um, the world around us, and even in today's world, it's 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 natural. We as human beings absorb knowledge and information, and 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 ideas and and thoughts, you know, without even knowing how we're how we're doing such things. So it, it makes sense that over time, yeah, we might develop certain associations. But I'm always more interested in in kind of the cultural explanations for for certain things and and seeing the kind of cultural history behind the development of, um, like, take, for example, the Saudi Arabian flag today. It's it's green and white, those two colors that I was talking about. And it's precisely because of that historic Islamic association with those two colors. These kinds of ideas blend into our politics. They blend into our engagement with others and, and people around us. So I, I think you can use many different theories and explanations But at the end of the day, it's it's just that it's always a debate, right?
2: It's interesting how it's not just the religious symbol, the crescent, the star of David, the cross that one associates with particular cultures or religions or lands. As you were speaking, Dunya, I was thinking of the flag of Israel, which has the star of David, but also is in blue and white. And blue is very much associated with Judaism in India the red, the color of saffron, is very much associated with Hinduism and Mother India. In other words, the color itself can imply a connection with a religion or a culture, not just the symbol.
4: Um, yeah, I was just thinking about, you know, I always try to ask the question, is it, you know, is it the egg or the chicken that comes first, right? So is it the fact that um, green was not an available color in in that part of the world where Islam was born, for example. Or is it the fact that there was this this mythology around the color of the clothing that the prophet used to wear? You know, what 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 was it that that brought forth green as such an essential symbol in Islam, whereas you know in Christianity or in other parts of the world you have other colors that come to represent these things, like our connection to our physical environment. Um, can explain a lot of you know cultural symbolism that that develops over time or can explain why there are certain colors that come to represent things in in our in our like historic and sacred mythologies um, so these are the kinds of connections that always fascinate me in, in trying to understand who who we are as human beings as human collectivities as as you know, this, these hu- these cultural imaginaries that we create over time and where these different elements uh, come in historically. We're
2: drawing towards a close, and I can't resist asking someone who's an art specialist and an art historian, someone who's a specialist in music and a concert pianist, to explain why their field is prime or why it has primacy over the other. Dunja. Is music more important than art?
4: <laughs> I think that's a difficult question. I believe that these these uh, these boundaries we've created to separate creativity are just that—they're just boundaries—and really, everything is much more fluid than we think. Um, you know, musicians. Often get inspired by art and color and and different things that they see, and I'm sure it's it's the same thing for for artists as well who who listen to a piece of music and and you know have an inspiration. Um, but I think I think what I love about music is how abstract it is. Um, that sound, a collection of sounds that cultures have you know developed. Um, uh, terminology to explain or or you know like in the arab world for example there are microtones that don't exist in, in in the western musical scale and that is meaningful to arabs when they listen to it and it's not necessarily the same meaning in 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 you know for a western person who's not used to associating those 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 intervals so dunya
2: you would be happy to be called an artist alaria <laughs> would you be happy to be called a musician yeah.
3: I would, uh, as a neither neither of them, <laughs> I, I am unfortunately neither of them, just someone who observes, but I would say that I would be happy to leave the poem of victory to music. Personally, I've always thought that music is, um, I could I could perhaps do without vis- the visual arts, even as an art historian, I could never do without music. Uh, and I think um, I thought about that, and I think that, Music has something, there is something about the vibration of music, the fact that music is vibration, that affects our body perhaps physically in a way that is so profound and that really creates a connection between ourselves and our environment in a way that the visual arts can't completely do. And so if I, I could do without seeing Titian uh, for 30 years, I couldn't do without hearing Beethoven for probably for, you know, 30 days.
2: Well, with those generous words ringing in our ears, I'd like to bring this episode to a close by thanking our guests, Dunya Habash and Ilaria Bernocki. And thanks to you too for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any thoughts, comments or reflections of your own, you can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. And please let us know what subjects you'd like to cover. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you get your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. Do join us next time.
0: Thinking about your next career move in research and development?